Hey everybody, welcome once again to the Wrestling Inc. Podcast. I'm Glenn Rubenstein, joined as always by Raj Geary and Chris Calicut. And today, J.J. Dillon, our guest, uh, one of the great wrestling managers. You know him as the strategic leader of the original Four Horsemen. And now he's got a podcast, The J.J. Dillon Show, which is episode four coming out this week. J.J., welcome to the Wrestling Inc. Podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I know I'll be talking to, let's see, Raj, Christian, Glenn, you're Glenn. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I love talking wrestling and th- this is, uh, it's going to be good. Well, well, let's get right to it. How is it, uh, kind of being back on, on camera in a sense and, and, and back, uh, you know, back in the wrestling world with, with your podcast every Thursday. Well, our podcast is audio only. So this is, uh, 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 another dimension which I'm comfortable doing too. I was on camera as far back as I can ever remember, and I'm never uh, intimidated by a microphone or a camera. So I'm very comfortable doing this, and uh, uh, hopefully, the, your listeners or viewers will uh, will be happy and and enjoy this episode. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of being on camera, uh, Matt Morgan, who does our uh, he does our Monday night podcast with us, our post raw podcast. And he had a question. He wanted to know, um, you were, you know, very, uh, a legendary manager in, in WCW, the NWA legendary manager of the four horsemen. What made you move to the WWF? Uh, I believe that was 1989, correct? Yes. And, and whose decision was it for it to be an, uh, not to be an on-camera role? Because that was around the same time that Tully and Tully and Arn, jump ship too so it seemed like that would have been a, a natural fit well just to give you a real quick history uh my career uh is goes back 60 years and i i have a picture that i i pulled down off the wall because we can't swing around and show it but here it is and this is try to get it so we don't have glare but this was <laughs> uh oh, 50, 60 years ago around 1957 it's in the basement of the armory in trenton new jersey and you see me uh uh, as a uh, 15, 16 year older with Johnny Valentine, who was my idol and who I started a fan club for. And the other picture is the original Zebra Kid, George Bolas. And both of these pictures are personalized to me and, and hold a position on my wall that I'm very proud of. And, and if you could see it up close, you'll note that they were signed and ballpoint pen because back in the 50s they, they didn't have sharpies but i started with a with a, as a fan club with johnny valentine hung around the business ended up they used to do a weekly uh studio show in philadelphia that ray fabiani was the promoter and had a big show once a month and they would use that show to promote it and it was at the nbc studios in downtown philly i was in college at the time and i used to come down with the guy that set the ring up and one week they had a blizzard and enough guys Enough of the wrestlers were there to do the show, but the, the referees were assigned by the athletic commission and <laughs> no referee showed up. And they had to tape the show and they're looking around with well, who could referee. And all eyes came to me from being around a lot. And they said, could you do it? And I said, uh, I think so. And so I refereed for the whole hour. And I guess I did a good enough job that they said, uh, we want to make the moves to get you on the athletic commission roster. Willie Gilsenberg, and I go back to Vince Sr., uh, used to come down every month for the big shows at the Philly Arena and got to know Vince Sr. on a first-name basis, and he knew me and was very kind to me. Uh, Arnold Scholem, even when I wasn't assigned, there were some shows where I didn't get assigned because it was 
a commission and thing, but I would go anyway because I love the business. And Arnold Scholen or Andrew, Angelo Savoldi used to do advances for the wrestlers, and Vince would be there. And next thing I know, the first time Arnold or Angelo would come up and just shake hands, good to see, you, and they'd palm me like a $20 bill. And they said, Vince was happy that you care enough to come down here and be here. <laughs> and so uh, I have great memories of Vince Sr. And then after I started wrestling, I was a referee for eight years. I, my dream was to be a wrestler, and I thought, well, maybe this is as far as my dream's going to carry me. And, um, the Sheik came in, the original Sheik, Eddie Farhat from Detroit, for a series of matches with Bruno Sammartino. And I never was really formally trained as a wrestler. All of my experience in terms of timing and philosophy of the business, I, was, I learned as the third man in the ring for a lot of Bruno Sammartino's Huge championship matches in the Philadelphia, Baltimore, Boston, uh, and, and against Gorilla Monsoon, Baron Sakuna, Toro Tanaka, Georgie Animal Steel, and just to be in the ring. Uh, and, and it's friendship started with Bruno in 1962 when he came here, and we've been friends for 55 years. Uh, friendship goes back that far. But after about eight years, uh, when the Sheik came in, just talking to him in the dressing room, I said, well, you know, my dream really was I wanted to be a wrestler. And he said, well, I, I promote in Detroit and Ohio. You come out and see me and bring your tights. We'll put you in the ring, see what you could do. And I took him up on it. Um, went, to went to Detroit. Actually, uh, my first time in the ring was in Dayton, Ohio. And I was in a tag match against the Hells Angels. And I can't remember who my, my partner was. And the next day they said, well, the guy's we're going to Pittsburgh to do TV. You want to go? And I said, yeah, I'm, I wasn't supposed to do anything else till the Sunday for TV for the Sheik. So I went to uh, Channel 11 studio in Pittsburgh with Chili Billy Cardill. And my first single professional match was with uh, Killer Kowalski. And not a lot of guys can say that's who they wrestled. And I, as I reflect back, probably was the closest that I think I ever came to dying in the ring because Kowalski just... He was on you, and just about the time you you got ready to take a deep breath, he you know you'd feel a boot in your belly. So, and then the next day I went to uh, up to I think Wall Lake, Michigan, or somewhere, and did the Sheiks TV and uh, Arnold Scholen. The only time we were ever tag team partners was that Sunday, and we faced the Hell's Angels again, and that opened the door, and went back next year for, for that following year for a whole week. That was been '68. The following year I went back for a whole week and worked house shows. Then I worked around Pittsburgh because Bruno had an interest in that promotion on weekends. And Jim Grabmeyer from Ohio would go to Charlotte every summer because they would expand their roster with outdoor shows. And he went down and all of a sudden I got a phone call. He said, this is, uh, you said this was your dream and they're looking for people. And I gave him your picture and based on my recommendation, you know, you, you could be booked starting Monday. So, wow. I packed everything I owned in an old beat up Chevy and never been south of Richmond, Virginia. And I, I left. At Niles, Ohio, drove to Charlotte, stayed at the Y right up the street from where Jim Sr. had his office. And that Monday night, I jotted the date down, was May 3rd, 1971. First match was in the Charlotte Park Center against Gene Anderson. And uh, a lot of people, as you described me as the leader of the Four Horsemen, which was the pinnacle of my career, but I, I had 3,200-some professional matches over that 20-year period. In the first five years, I was a full-time wrestler until a phone call from Archie Goldie opened up that chapter as a manager. And so uh, 
So what what made you decide to go from being a manager in WCW to a, a front office uh, position in WWF? Uh, I actually, when I started that first time in the ring with Gene Anderson, I was 28 years old, closer to my 29th birthday. I was not a kid. So I knew that, yeah, I'm now living my dream, but I have to be realistic that at almost 29 years old, starting out full-time, my time as a full-time wrestler was going to be greatly limited because of my age. So I immediately focused a lot of attention on the business side of, the, of wrestling, uh, uh, television promotion, uh, how to produce a TV show, how to do a TV show, how to book talents. And every place that I went, and I was around some of the great ones, I, I spent a year uh, with the Funks in Amarillo. Then I went to Florida with Eddie Graham. And Eddie Graham, to me, I mean, I remember Eddie Graham from going to Madison Square Garden, seeing Dr. Jerry and Eddie Graham. And now I'm in Florida and with his reputation as being one of the greatest minds in, in wrestling. And I'm here I am able to get from him like a sponge. And I, I continued wrestling. And then uh, I ended up back in, in, uh, in the Carolinas with the Horsemen. And Tully and Arn were there, and I was managing them, and they had a chance to go to New York with Bobby the Brain Heen and become the Brainbusters. And it was right when Crockett Promotions kind of was having some rocky times, and Turner brought the company and renamed it World Championship Wrestling to protect the programming that was still doing great, great ratings. And it wasn't it was like November of '88, I want to say. And Tully called me a week or two later and he said, well, we're up here, and uh, already I've, we realized that Vince and Pat Patterson are doing all the booking, and they need help. And your name has been mentioned and, uh, as being somebody that's got good creative ideas, and you're an attention-to-detail person, and they're very interested in you, depending on what you got going. And so I called uh, uh, Terry Garvin, who was there, who I'd known Terry from working with him in Amarillo, working with him in Kansas City. He immediately, Pat Patterson was standing right there, put Pat on the phone. And I was going up to New York uh, for the holidays with the one who became my third <laughs> my third wife. And Vince uh, got the message to me to, I was at the Marriott Marquis in Manhattan. He's, he said, we're going to send a car down. And Vince wanted me to meet him in his home. And I went up to uh, Greenwich, met Vince in his home. He said, the reason we're meeting here is I don't want to put you on the spot. And uh, he offered me a job with the understanding that I would walk off camera, which is to answer your question. He said, I'm, I'm not interested in you as an on-camera uh, character or personality. And at that point, I was like almost 44 years old. So I thought, well, how many more times can I go in the ring for a special match with Precious Paul Ellering? Uh, the timing was great, and I'm looking. Title of my book, if if you look at my uh, my autobiography, it's "Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls," but the subtitle is "From McMahon to McMahon," and it refers to a comment. If you read in the book, you'll see, you know, where that that title came from. But "McMahon to Man," "McMahon to McMahon" was also a reference to my career. Vince McMahon Sr. as a referee, and now here I am all these years later, Vince McMahon Jr. is recruiting me, if I want to, to step off, off camera and come to work for him. And I, 
and he met me in his home and he said, I, if you want to go back and use me as leverage and tell him we talked and get a, the best deal Ken could, Ken with a new company because Turner just bought it. Or he said, I hope you'll accept my offer. And he made me a, a very attractive offer and said, let me sleep on it overnight. And then first thing in the morning I called and I started, uh, I needed a couple of days off and started with him in, I think it was February of, of 89. So McMahon to McMahon is really the story of my career. And I went to work for Vince in the front office and basically disappeared off camera. Wow. And how did you find that transition? I mean, so you really, I think, what's informed your perspective, which is great, is you started off as a fan. I mean, a super fan, went to, you know, refing matches, working inside the ring, working as a manager. I mean, which, which do you enjoy the most out of all these aspects and elements of your varied and storied career? Uh, Glenn, I, I I enjoyed every aspect of it, and I kind of look and figure, okay, as a as a referee for eight years, when I stepped into the ring, both as a babyface and as a heel during that five year period of time, I was a better wrestler because of my eight years as a referee with mm -hmm. top top talent, and then when I had a chance because of, of a phone call that I didn't expect. And in life, as one door is closing behind you, another door is opening in front of you. And I never really did think about managing, but I also looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, hey, you know, you're not a gym rat. You don't have a, a, a Lex Luger, Superstar Graham, Hulk Hogan type of body. I'm tall and in the ring look bigger than... I probably was. I have six one something and probably two twenty five, but look bigger. And then I thought, you know, this is a natural transition because what I had concentrated the most on was what I thought was my strongest asset was my interviews. And mm -hmm. I really worked in preparation to the point that I developed, I thought, a skill of being able to give the impression that it was an impromptu interview that I had never had any notes or contemplated where really in my mind, I almost memorized it in my mind by, by preparation. And of course, as, as I got more and more experience, uh, I didn't, I, I can't say that I never prepared. I think I prepared mentally for every interview, including this one. And I just always wanted to be the, the best that I could be. But as a manager, because I had been a referee, because I had worked in the ring, heel and babyface, as a manager, I feel that made me a better manager. And I remember Bobby Heenan one time told me, well, the whole secret is being able that when I did go in the ring after becoming a manager, you, you, you've had great uh, foundation as a wrestler at 3,200 matches. So I could go in the ring if it came to, would my timing be as slick as, as a guy that was wrestling every night? No, but I could go in the ring and have a, a decent match that fans were looking at me and say, oh, we thought he was a manager. We didn't know he knew how to wrestle. <laughs> but but the fan expectation with me as a manager changed my persona. They, When I did go in the ring, they didn't expect me to be a polished wrestler. And I was arrogant. I was uh, boastful and not really liked by the fans. So when I went in the ring against the top babyface, they didn't expect me to. They expect me to get my butt kicked. And I had to learn, as Bobby Heenan said, you got to learn how now, now to wrestle like a manager. And mm -hmm. I, I, I learned a tremendous lesson 
I went uh, to Houston and worked for Paul Bosch, one of the the late Paul Bosch is probably one of the along with Sam Muchlick, they were two of the greatest promoters ever in in the industry. And Paul paid very well, and everybody wanted to be there. And I was working in Dallas, and you would work for Devon Erickson in the Dallas area, work for Joe Blanchard around San Antonio Corpus Christi. And then if you were fortunate, you were you were figured in with Paul Bosch. And I remember Gino Hernandez was active at that time, and Paul really, really had a liking for Gino Hernandez and a personal interest in having him be the biggest star he could be. And it led to a confrontation where I was forced to go in the ring with Gino Hernandez. And I'd been around as a manager for about six months. And I'm I'm sitting, and this is, I will admit, before I tell you what happened, uh, it's one of the few times in my career where maybe I never thought, I think everybody has to have an ego if you have success in the business, but I was never consumed by an ego. I always held it in check. But I that night I'm looking around, I think, you know, a lot of these guys, I've been manager for six months, and a lot of these guys have forgot that, hey, I've you know, put the tights on. I was a, a credible worker. So I went out there to wrestle Gino Hernandez with that mindset. And I went out and I was my timing eh, exactly. No, but it was close. And boy, I was coming back to the dressing room all full of myself. What a great match I had until I opened the door and I looked at Paul Bosch and the expression on his face <laughs> told me that you better wipe that smile off of your face. <laughs> and and Paul impressed upon me that, and he was, and I respect him for his honesty, that he said, you went out there tonight and you did not give the fans what they anticipated. Mm. You went around with your own agenda to prove something to the guys in the dressing room. And those fans bought tickets to see you go out there, fumble and stumble, not as a polished wrestler, and to go out and get your butt kicked and you didn't deliver. And you know, I <laughs> I wasn't standing as tall with that conversation. I was shrinking, but I thank Paul Bosch for his honesty, and I never forgot those words. And every time after that, as a manager, when I went in the ring, according to Bobby Heenan, I wrestled like a manager because that's what the fans expected. And that took a lot of lot of ability too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and just like any business, you continue to learn, just like uh, podcasting, media, whatever. We continue to learn every day. Um, anything you do in life, but moving from the business side to maybe the more fun side of say the four horsemen, can you give us one slightly PG rated Ric Flair story that comes to mind, especially for me, I'm a Carolina boy. Maybe that happened in the Carolinas. Oh man, <laughs> really put me on the spot. And that reminds me, I'm not here to plug a lot of things, but Dick Bourne recently put out a book called the four horsemen and it is a a timeline history it's not a behind the scenes thing and he sent me a copy and i've looked through it and it really traces the four horsemen back before i became part of it which started with the andersons and then tully came in and i was managing tully and then the the four horsemen were and this is true with a lot of the great success stories in wrestling was not a creative idea that somebody had say, oh, we're going to put these guys together and you can manage them and we'll, we'll call you the four horsemen. Arn Anderson went out on a, on a market specific interview and we don't have a copy of that tape because we can't even remember which interview it was, but it was probably a market where the TV was airing and we didn't have a specific local show to, 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 uh, to promote. So we would have to still fill those two spots. So they could, take all of us and go out there and just talk in general. 
and Flair was the world champion. Uh, Ole and Ar and uh, Ar I think Ole and Arn were world tag team champions. Tully was a national champion. I managed Tully, so we all went out. And Arn looked at the camera. Everybody with the bolt gold belts over their shoulders, and he said, "You people that are watching at home, take a good look at your picture. Here's all of the champions, all the gold, all the bragging rights, and to have so few." dominate everybody else in the industry you'd have to go back in your history books to the four horsemen of the apocalypse and put up the four fingers well all of a sudden we we didn't think anything of it we start going out and people yelling four horsemen four horsemen i remember jimmy crockett a couple weeks later said, what's this four horsemen thing i keep hearing about now, i don't know jimmy it's uh it's something that the fans picked up on and they're the ones running with it and i think maybe somebody ought to pay some attention and that's how it started and we never in our wildest imagination ever thought that it would become as big as it became or last as long as it did. Sure. And let me ask you this, too. Um, did the four horsemen take their titles with them every there, everywhere they went on the town the night after the show? Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the flair wear the world title belt into the local uh, uh, watering hole? No. Okay. But he, he didn't have to. He always dressed to the nines. And then we used to have to, like, we were anxious to get out of the dressing room. And Flair would take forever, you know, because he wore a shirt, tie, and a jacket. And so he got dressed and we got to go wherever we were going to go. We would get to the hotel, run up to our rooms, open our bags, take everything, and towels and things that were, spread them out to dry. And it would be like a uh, a race to get to the, to the local bar, which was oftentimes in the hotel where we were staying. And of course, Flair had an act for on the interviews for that specific market say, and uh, after you can come join us because the night's going to end with a final bell, you can come to, uh, you know, whatever the watering hole was, whether it was the hotel or what. And we would get to, and if we were in Chicago, it was down on Rust Street. We used to go to a place called the Snuggery, which I'm sure doesn't exist anymore. It's probably changed names 10 times, but we would pull up in the limo and there would be a line down the block to try and get in the place because they'd have a, a limit how many people come in there and man we we get the red carpet treatment we would come in and all the times we went there i don't think i ever saw a, a tab you know we'd say hey where's my tab they said well, you <laughs> you don't have one it's either been taken care of or everybody that's in here bought you guys all your drinks and uh it was a good time to answer your question and to come up with a flair story man that's tough he, he tells one story, and I think he told it when we were inducted into the Hall of Fame in Miami, the WWE Hall of Fame. And we lived in Charlotte at the time. Um, I was married to my second wife. Uh, Flair was married at the time. And we would go, we would race back from wherever we were. And if it was close by, a TV like in Rock Hill or something, we could get to the local Bennigan's, you know, well before closing time, get in there and have, as it go, you know, line some drinks up at the bar and, and uh, we got ready to leave, and, and Rick and Beth, his wife at the time, got in an argument about something, and she put her purse down, and Rick football kicked it out the front door, <laughs> and oh, wow. that's it. You know, his wife, Beth, that's it, that's it. I'm going home, and I'm taking the baby, who is uh, uh, Charlotte Ashley, is her legal name, was, I could hold her in my hand at that point. She was in a crib to sleep with a babysitter, <laughs> and Rick says, Come on, let's go. We got to beat him there. I jump in the car. Rick jumps in with me, and we broke all the speed limits, I'm sure, to, and got to the house before the girls did. 
open the doors. Rick runs in the house. I'm waiting behind the thing with the engine running. Rick goes upstairs, tells the babysitter to go home, and there's the 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 baby so, sleeping so soundly in the crib. Rick just curls underneath the crib and falls sound asleep. Next thing I know, there's there's daylight. I'm and all of a sudden Rick's there. Hey, engine's still running. What happened? What do you mean? What happened? Well, didn't you see anybody leave? Uh, no. <laughs> and Rick said the baby's gone. So he jumped in. We're going to go back to my house, and I go in first. And I'm in there for a couple of minutes. I think I had to drop Rick off to get his car. So I got home first to my house, and I walk in. And of course, Beth's there with the baby, and my wife, and she's cooking breakfast, and. Rick is a few minutes later, and as Rick tells the story, as he walked in the front door of my house, off to the to the left, you could see into the kitchen, and the kitchen was like a great room to the seating area to eat. And there's my wife flipping eggs and bacon or whatever, and she's reading the riot act to me about how terrible we had misbehaved the night before. And Rick is expecting, as he tells the story, me to be standing there at attention, taking this brow beating. And when Rick walked over and peeked around the corner, um, <laughs> head down on the table, sound asleep, oblivious to the whole thing. Now that's that's a, a PG story, and the others, uh, God, I don't think I could tell any of the others. And if I, if I did tell you, I'd have to kill you. Well, there you go. A lot of people are asking in, in the chat uh, if you can still keep in touch with uh, any of the horsemen. Yeah, I, I I talk to Rick at least a couple times a year, especially during the holidays. And he does a lot of appearances. And if he's anywhere near me, you know, I'll go see him. Sometimes it's a surprise and, and I might be a guest there too. And it, I, I just, I always, enjoy, he's always been fun to be around. And he, after all these years, as many appearances as he does, there's always a line out because he's very fan friendly and they all want his autograph and they all want a picture taken with him. And he, he just, you know, and he's, he flirts with all the girls and the, and the girls think that's the greatest and the guys aren't offended because somebody's flirting with their girlfriend or their wife and they're not mad at Rick because they, they want to be like Rick. So he's <laughs> just incredibly popular. I'm always happy to see him. Arn is on the road with the WWE as an agent, so he has a busy schedule, and, and he gets like one weekend off a month or something, and I never call him when he's home because a lot of times he and, and Aaron will go away somewhere, take a cruise or something, and and if he is at a, at a local event, uh, I'm in Delaware, and sometimes they'll go to uh, University of Delaware at Carpenter Center, and if he's up there, it's not that you know 45-minute drive, I'll go up there to see him or up in Philly. And then Tully, we talk, uh, and also Arn will do some appearances. I recently saw him. He did something in Richmond, and I was there too. And it was great to have a couple hours sitting next to him, just talking old stories and just being around him. And same thing with Tully. Barry, you don't see as often. Barry's kind of a very private person. But the, we're close, all of us. And I still talk to Oli. Oli's health is not the best. He's wheelchair-bound, um, has MS and needs care 24 hours a day and has somebody there that uh, has been there through thick and thin through all the years. And But you talk to Ole on the phone, you would never know. It's the same old gruff Ole on the phone. And like I say, our friendship goes back to 1971 when I first went to Charlotte and Ole was there. So, yes, to answer your question, I don't see Luger that much. 
just a, a casual, casual appearances, but certainly the other guys and, uh, and, and Luger, no, but, uh, I do with Ole on the phone and I don't get down to Atlanta very often. I haven't seen him for a while. He's come to a couple of the fan fests with the Greg Price, and I, you know, I always look forward to seeing Ole. And then I do see Barry from time to time. We'll do appearances together. We've all, uh, actually in 25 years, I think there's only two times that all five of us have been together. One time was in Charlotte, where also uh, Luger was there too, and Ole and Barry. So you talk about a Horseman reunion. That was a total Horseman reunion, including Flair, and but they're few and far between. Wow. Uh, I, I did want to ask you, too, uh, regarding when you were working with WCW in the late 90s and uh, Ric Flair was having his issues with Eric Bischoff. How, how difficult was that uh, being so close to, to Rick and then also, uh, you know, working in, as an executive with WCW during that time? It was very difficult. I've always had the philosophy if I work for you and, and you're signing the checks, I have a loyalty to you. In that case, uh, I don't remember that Eric was actually signing the checks, but if he was, it wasn't his check. It was Turner's check. They owned WCW. And he and uh, Eric and Flair got crosswise. He fired Flair, sent him home, wanted to fire Arn. And I convinced him that Arn was so valuable to us. I had to take one thing at a time and convinced him that it would be a huge business mistake to let Arn go and that he would have a hard time explaining it to people above him why he let Arn go. Arn was that valuable a commodity. So he backed off from that. And then little by little, I arranged for Flair to come down and have a meeting. And I was kind of the the, the peacemaker go-between. And same thing with, with Flair. You don't, you want to lose Flair. He's a commodity back then. But it was... Um, yeah, it was a rocky road, to say the least, because Eric was not – he wasn't the wrestling person that everybody at, at WCW and at TBS hierarchy thought he was. He was carried coffee for Vern Gagne. That was uh, his foundation in the wrestling business. And when I first got hired, I needed a job. I had left Vince in my own volition, volition after uh, – I'd been there seven, not quite eight years. Walked out. I had young kids. I had to have a job with benefits. And uh, I had Shivani call Eric, and he said, yeah, Eric wants to meet with you. And when I went to see Eric Bischoff for the first time, never met him before, the first thing he talked about was not what I could help him. And I'm not talking about proprietary information, specific numbers, guys, earnings, that kind of thing, but the philosophy of how Vince built talent and, and, and structured his television show, all Eric wanted to talk about was, how much longer can he stay in business? I'm going to put him out of business. What other matches has he got to go with? And he, I just sat and listened. And I didn't want to say to him because I needed a job, Eric, if you think you're going to put Vince McMahon out of business, you're crazy. Uh, Vince was a third-generation wrestling 24-7. WCW was a division of a broadcast company, and which eventually happened when Eric finally ran it into the ground, was reckless with uh, – the guaranteed contracts, reckless with the um, production cost of the television shows. That I mean, eventually, all of a sudden, it, when the good times were good, everybody at, at the suits at, at TBS was smiling and thought, oh, well, we got a guy in Eric that was 
kind of a TV guy, worked for Vern Gagne, and a wrestling guy too, and he must be doing great. And then when it nosedive, and all of a sudden they're losing five million a month, and then projected to lose five million more the next month and the next month, sixty million dollar losses for that year, and another sixty next year. All of a sudden, everybody stood the tension and said, "What's going on?" And start asking questions, and that was the beginning of of the end. And um, you know, Eric was his his own worst enemy. Yeah. Right. No, sorry, Raj. Go ahead. Uh, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, JJ, just you're a multi-time Hall of Famer across your storied career. Is there one particular Hall of Fame, whether it be WWE, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the the Tragos and Thez, or even the Cauliflower Alley Club that either has a special place in your heart or or means of just maybe a touch more than the other? Um, Glenn, I've been received numerous honors, and and uh, you'd say, oh well, yeah, what he's going to say that everyone is so meaningful. But generally, you have, I have to go back to that picture from 60 years ago as a kid that started as a fan, had a fan club, dreamed of getting into wrestling, refereed for eight years, got my chance to put the tights on. Five years later, I get a chance to manage. And, and when it's all over, when I wrote my autobiography in, in 2005, my Hall of Fame, my first Hall of Fame was... 2012 with the WWE in Miami when the horsemen were inducted. Mm-hmm. And I wear this ring very proudly. And prestige-wise, when I wear both of my Hall of Fame rings, the, the first one they look at, and if I could, if your hands were here and I could put them in, the weight of this one with the gold in it and the value of it in terms of appraisal is half again more than this. But the fans look at this because they see the the WWE logo. And you look at who preceded me back to Andre the Giant is the first one. Uh, it's it's the perception. Now, I'm the first one to admit, if you ask me what's the process by which you guys were chosen, um, I'd have to say, well, I guess it comes down to one person makes that decision, and a lot of it's a business decision. What's going to put asses in seats on the night before WrestleMania when we have a separate ticket to see the Hall of Fame induction. That's just being brutally honest. But that doesn't diminish the fact that I'm proud. Uh, the, the WWE brought all of my children in, two rooms, first-class hotel. Uh, my son, who is a handicapped, and, and Miami, actually, when I got the call, I, I had already signed a contract with South uh, Corrente to do something that Mike Graham had, at, which was a championship wrestling from Florida reunion out at Miami beach that same weekend. And I had signed to be there as a guest and, and to do a signing. And when I got the call that we were being inducted in the WWE hall of fame that weekend, I said, Oh man, I don't want to break the news to you, but I signed a contract for Saturday morning to be in Miami beach. And the first words were, well, you know how Vince is. He hates for anybody else to be, Co-tailing on the fact that WrestleMania is there. And I said, oh, please, I don't want to hear that. I don't want anybody to – I can't tell you what this means to me and my family. And it ended up there was a, a gal named Kristen Altman who still works there, and she's moved up the ladder in positions, and she was the point person. And I told her, she said, don't worry. This is going to be a weekend like you'll never forget. And it, and it was true. Everything, all my – I said when I was approached the first time, I think I had to sign a contract. I got a, a payoff. 
and there was going to be you and and another guest or two guests could come first class tickets from wherever and i said well i already got a ticket to go down there by sal corrente can i bring my four children and they're they're happy to ride coach with me not a problem so we got tickets for my kids i said now since there's you know five of us you know the one room no problem two rooms and then we got down there my daughter from my first marriage pam found out about the thing with my Miami Beach with Sal Corrente and Bill Hafter was going to be there. They were having a wrestling event and a bunch of guys signing, some of which were WWE Hall of Famers. So she said to me, well, can I ride with you over to Miami Beach? I'd love to see Bill Hafter. I haven't seen him in all these years. So I went to Chris and I said, my daughter Pam wants to ride with me over there. I said, no problem, because we were going to send you and an intern to be with you, stand by, make sure you got out, come back in time for rehearsals. And I said, I was going to call Sal and see if I could get a car. She said, no, we've arranged transportation for you and the intern. And there's room for your for your daughter. Well, my other three kids were there that I had with my third marriage that, oh, you're going over to Miami Beach. Oh, that's where we wanted to go. We wanted to go down to the beach. So I went back to Kristen. I said, Kristen, got another little problem. I said, I got three more that want to go with me. She said, don't worry, I will arrange transportation. And I said, well, Jeffrey's in a wheelchair. He's handicapped. She said, well, do you need one of those vans with a lift? We'll get a vehicle like they use for courtesy vehicles to go to a rental car from the airport. No, 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 no. He can transfer into a car. You get up the next morning, walk outside. There's a stretch black limo. Nice. And the limo took us over to Miami Beach, parked outside and sat there for the whole time that I was there. The intern stuck with me. My daughter, Pam was with Bill after having a, a wonderful time. I could look out the big window where we were signing and see my kids down at the beach prolic in the water. And then the intern went down and rounded them up and we were supposed to leave and come back. So in terms of a memorable weekend, uh, if you go onto my website, jjdillon.com, there is a banner off on the right uh, uh, that's WWE Hall of Fame. And you click on that and there's a bunch of pictures from that weekend. And it's memories that I will cherish forever. I, I have the my Hall of Fame plaque up here on the wall, pictures from that weekend. The WWE sent a huge thing with all of us uh, on the stage Friday night. Uh, there's a, a little mini picture of us out at WrestleMania. To go to American Airlines Arena the night before WrestleMania and have 15,000 people sold out, to see and, and again it wasn't just the horseman uh it was uh it was edge it was iron mike tyson was the celebrity guy yokozuna posthumously ron simmons the great ron simmons a runner-up for the heisman trophy as an athlete and for us to walk out on that stage American Airlines Arena and get a standing ovation when the horsemen all went out and here's 15,000 people with a symbol of excellence. Whew. <laughs> you talk about goosebumps. And then the next day at the middle of the, of the stadium with 75,000 people, they, they showed a package from the night before that Howard Finkel voiced over. And meanwhile, they rolled out a carpet with stars in it and put us out next day came back live and there we're all standing. Now we got, 75 people standing ovation doing this again you talk about goosebumps uh when i came back from that weekend i just i thought the one thing about the wwe when they do something they do it right 
And that's a memory that I'll never, ever forget. And then the other ring was, by contrast, it was the following year, 2013. And that's when Tony Villano, who started the, the only true professional wrestling legitimate Hall of Fame with a process by which there was ballots and voting to be picked, the difference is that there is a legitimate process that, that is listed, and it's an honor to be on the ballot, let alone have people, your peers in the business, vote for you and feel that you're worthy of this. And the induction in those days was up in uh, Amsterdam, New York. We had 250 people there. It's full in Phil where they're having a dinner. And that was just as meaningful to me. I have those pictures uh, up on the wall. Uh, uh, Bill Watts was there. Baron Raschke, Tito Santana, Joe Hamilton, one of the original assassins. We were all part of that class with, along with Joyce Grable, who had been in a battle fighting cancer. And it was those memories I, I treasure, again, because I know the process. And I got the best of both worlds. I got the prestigious ring that everybody first looks at. And then when they focus on the other one and realize that it's a legitimate Hall of Fame and a brick, only brick-and-mortar museum, uh, devoted to professional wrestling, man, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Um, JJ, I did want to ask you one last question. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about Ric Flair joining WWF in, uh, in uh, was it 1991? Uh, and you were working backstage, uh, you know, with Vince. Did you have anything to do with that? And what was that time period like? And lastly, were you disappointed they didn't do Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania? Uh, you know, it, it, that match had been had already taken place. It wasn't like it was the dream match that never happened. And it's when I went to the WWE, I had been in all the regional territories and I worked for some of the greatest minds in the business. And I had been involved in the creative side of it because I knew that was my longevity in the business. And I worked with, uh, talent travel. I worked with, uh, routing of towns. I had, I dabbled in everything. Now I go to work for the WWE and here are individual people and all of them are not necessarily wrestling fans that were executives in charge of all these little things that I used to do wearing all these hats and this is their full-time job. So, wow, this is on a whole, whole much larger scale. And Vince was hands-on on everything. If there was a poster for an upcoming pay-per-view that had Hulk in the ring tearing his shirt. Anybody that's ever looked at a, a, a shot of a ring, somebody in the ring, you never see every seat. Somebody either has to go to the bathroom or out to get popcorn. Vince would sit there and make sure that every one of those seats was filled in. He That was his attention to detail. So I never ever thought that I had it all figured out and knew it all in the business. I was still learning. And when I went to work for Vince McMahon, he had his own philosophy. Um, not the easiest guy to work for because he was that was his whole life. 24-7 was the wrestling business. And if he ever did anything else, and I never knew Vince to ever take a vacation. What he did was uh, everything involved with wrestling. And he would go to the gym, pump iron. And he he you look at the people he pushed, the Hulk Hogan's, the Ultimate Warriors, the Lex Luger's. They were all what? You looked at him, and that was Vince's vision of what he thought a professional wrestler should look like. <laughs> and Vince prided himself in, in how hard he worked out in the gym. And even later in life, I've, I'm, I'm told that he still 
pushes phenomenal weights to the point that he's blown out both shoulders or I mean, he's had a couple surgeries because that's Vince only knows one way to do it. And that's to push at a hundred percent and then some beyond your limits. But he was a fascinating guy to be around, learned a lot working for him. And like I say, in my autobiography, wrestlers are like seagulls, McMahon to McMahon. That was the story of my career from Vince senior as a referee in Eastern Pennsylvania to being recruited to work for Vince and being with him for eight years. And then I left and went to work for, thought I retired with WCW. Never thought that with Eric Bischoff there, he would run it in the ground. And all of a sudden after five years, because it was a division of a company that wasn't going to absorb sustained losses and they, they pulled the plug. Now I'm 61 years old, spent greater part of my life in a niche business. And now what do I do? Went through a divorce, and I, I moved back to Delaware. Uh, I was out of a job, and my mother was living. My father had passed 2000, and my mother said, in 2003, come on up here to Delaware. She had a home that paid for. Uh, you can help take care of me. So I moved up here. And uh, the first two years, I did work for Jerry Jarrett in, and stayed in Atlanta. He had a construction business, and they were building a – he lived in Nashville, didn't want to move down. I, I could work for my home, and they built a – a high school, and I think they were reimaging all the Amico stations to BP. That lasted about two years. Then that ended. I'm out of work again. That's how I ended up coming to Delaware. And I came here, and uh, I had kids late in life. I had twins when I was 50, and my last one, wow. I was 52 when she was born. I had to have benefits and take care of them. And everywhere I went to look for a job, oh, they all knew who I was, and they looked at the money that I made. And they thought, oh, you're not going to be happy here. We'd love to hire you, but. And I finally saw an ad in the uh, in the newspaper in Delaware for, of all things, a job fair for Department of Corrections. And I went to the job fair, took the test, passed it with a great score. They had uh, panel meetings of anybody that passed the score, looked at me, and so they all knew who I was. And the age was not a factor with the state. They, you know, they, nobody else would hire me and say age because they thought you'd sue them, but the state didn't care. So at the age of 61, I, I, or 60, yeah, 61, I got hired into the Department of Correction. Went through the uh, academy for nine weeks. And when I look back, I just retired December 1st of this last year after 12 years, I think, and 11 months of, of service. And it was a whole different experience for me. I went to the prison and um, you never know what's on the other side of that wall till you venture in there. And it's a whole different world, different culture. They have their own system, monetary system. They pay debts with their, with their, you know, their soups and things that they get from commissary and they have their own code of conduct. And I never had any problem because yeah, they knew who I was and recognized me. And I realized that as in the wrestling business, when you get beyond the wrestling business to get respect, you have to give respect. And I did and never, never had any problems. And now I look back at this point in my life, I've had two successful careers. My passion is still there for wrestling. Uh, next week, a uh, week from today, I'll be getting, or week for tomorrow, I'll be getting on a plane to go up to Waterloo, Iowa. This will be my third year going up there for the, George Tragos Luthez Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. And I was honored there last year. I got the Luthez World Heavyweight Championship Award presented to me by Charlie Thez, Lou's widow, personally handed to me. I see the award up here on my wall, a picture of it I'm very proud of. 
this year, uh, Magnum TA is getting the, the Luthez Award. And it's in the Dan Gable Museum in Waterloo, Iowa. And, and you still got time to make plans to go up there. Anybody who's a wrestling fan, it has to be on your bucket list to go to Waterloo, Iowa, to the Dan Gable Museum. And when I first went up there three years ago, I took my son with me because he, he wrestled as an amateur in spite of his disability. And I said, the best, I wrestled in college, but it wasn't very good. And I say the best amateur wrestler in our family is my son, even though he's handicapped in a wheelchair. And he went up there and met Dan Gable. And you would think, as a wrestling fan, if you the first time you met Hulk Hogan, ah, that's how he felt about meeting Dan Gable, who was a very, very humble individual. Uh, Kyle Klingman is the director up there. Rob Schamberger, who does all the artwork for the WWE, painted a mural. And when I walked through the door of the Dan Gable Museum, there's Rob Schamberger putting the finishing touches on a mural that was eight feet tall, probably 10, 12 feet long. There's a likeness of Luthez, Kurt Angle, Danny Hodge, and it just took your breath away. And when you walked into the Tragos Thez pro wrestling wing in the Dan Gable Museum, there's paintings that Rob Schamberger did of anybody that's ever been honored or recognized, including mine. And I, nobody ever did a portrait of, of me before. Nice. And it took my breath away. And he, he does these for everybody and donates them. So here's all these individual portraits. And I become a huge fan of Rob Schamberger. And finally, I, I, I think I, it was a year ago, I said to him, Rob, I said, this one's here, but at home, I would love to have, nobody's ever painted my portrait. And I probably couldn't afford to pay you what it would probably cost to do it. And Rob said, no, he said, I would be honored to do it for all that you've given to the business. And he said, uh, there's no way in the world you could pay for it. Wow. And so I've had to wait a year. He sent me, it's been posted on Facebook, the first rough draft of he took a, he usually takes a picture, does the outline. And then as I've seen, he starts to put the colors in and wow, it comes to life. And then I saw the final picture and I'm dressed and you see my Hall of Fame rings and it's been shipped and I wait for the doorbell to ring every day for the package <laughs> to finally get here. And I'm going to have it, uh, professionally framed, mounted and framed, and in a, in a place of honor on my wall. That's how big a fan I'm of Rob Schamberger. So nice. I'm going to Waterloo. Uh, it's uh, If you're a wrestling fan, you got to put that on your bucket list. And it's July 21, 22 in Waterloo. Dan Gable Museum, fabulous place. Dan is a wonderful person. He just published another book this year, which I want to get a signed copy. I, I see they got a new T-shirt. I go up there like a fan. I go in there with money in my pockets and say, what's here that I, you know, I want to, I have things here that are my memories. And I, they actually did a, a thing to raise funds where they, an artist did a singlet of Dan Gable. They had four limited editions of a hundred each. I got one of them and I had it framed and it's on my wall. So I'm probably one of the biggest Dan Gable fans in the world. When I went last year, Kurt Angle was there because he, he hadn't been able to get his ring. And so I had some pictures with my son with, Kurt Angle, and with Dan Gable. And it's among my proudest possessions. And then I know it's getting ahead a little bit. I just got a couple things where I I am going in August, which is a little bit away, but the weekend of 11, 12, 13th of August, uh, I'm going to a 1CW event in East Stroudsburg, and 
Sean Hardy, who's a Delaware native and a friend of mine, he's promoting the event up there uh, in East Stroudsburg at the St. Paul's Lutheran Church. And I'm appearing there Friday night. And then Bud Carson, who has a store up in Allentown, and he's been a friend of wrestling for forever, it seems. And he brings guys into the store to sign. On that Sunday, uh, I'm going to be making an appearance at, at the Bud Carson's store uh, up in Allentown. And the night before, there's an Icons of Wrestling uh, convention in Philadelphia at the 2300 arena, not dollar, arena, in Philadelphia, big arena. Uh, Jim Ross is there. I, I saw uh, Rock and Roll Express, Jerry Lawler, a bunch of guys there, Animal, and I'm going to be at uh, Bud Carson's uh, table signing. So it's going to be a busy weekend for me. But first things first, I'm really, really excited about going to Waterloo. And if you're a wrestling fan, man, you got to put it on your bucket list to come to Waterloo. Absolutely. Very, very good. Uh, well, JJ, it was an honor to have you on our show today, and uh, we appreciate you joining us. I just want to remind everybody about your brand new show who just started a few weeks ago on the Major League Wrestling Radio website, which is MLWradio.com. The JJ Dillon Show comes out every Thursday, I believe you said, on episode four alongside yep. co-host uh, Rich, Rich Bocchini. Bocchini. Yes. Yep. Uh, all that some of our viewers may know as Rich Brennan from uh, his time in WWE. But yeah. also, quick reminder of his uh, appearances that you just ran down as well. He'll be in Waterloo July 21st and 22nd for the Tragos and Thes Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame induction weekend at the Dan Gable Museum. Um, and then on in August, he'll be in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania on Friday, August 11th. And then on August 12th, at Bud Carson's table at the Icons of Wrestling show at the 2300 Arena in Philly. And then on the 13th, uh, Merchant Square Mall for the Bud Carson Pro Wrestling World Store signing from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. And, and, uh, and JJ, Brandon, thank you so much for joining I just want us. to mention, too, that I will have copies of my book and signed copies uh, in Waterloo and at all three appearances. I'll bring them. And Dick Bourne has been kind enough to send some copies of a book that I love. I signed them and they're available too. So excellent. I will have them. If those of you that haven't gotten a book is 2005 already in discussions with Scott Teal at Crowbar press who has published everything. He did only before me and he's done Stan Hansen and Tony Atlas and uh, all kinds of books on wrestling. He did, he's done a complete history of matches from Madison square garden, which I've yet to get my copy. So uh, Scott Teal respected historian Go to Crowbar Press, and not only there you can find my book and how to acquire it, but all the other publications that he does. And, uh, again, Dick Bourne with the Four Horsemen. I think you can find that book on Amazon.com. But come see me in Waterloo or come see me at the three appearances up in Pennsylvania. I'll have copies, signed copies that you could get. And always love seeing the fans and talking wrestling. Never get tired of that. And I appreciate uh, Raj and Chris and Glenn, you guys, uh, inviting me to be on your show they say you're the oldest and largest wrestling website, right? Have I got that right? That is correct. Yeah. And to be on your – this podcast thing is a whole new thing for me. So episode four coming up, uh, Court Bauer talked me into doing it. And with Rich Bocchini, he makes me so comfortable. It's like just two guys sitting and having a conversation about wrestling. And fans could go on Twitter and give their feedback what they liked, what they didn't like. And we so far have been getting five-star ratings with each episode, which, and the numbers compared to other established podcasts, uh, you know, Court Bauer is thrilled to death. I'm, I am too. And as always, I thank the listeners that not only 
follow your uh, website and your podcasts that are allowing me to to uh, come into your homes today to to see me and have me talk with you guys. But you know, check out the JJ Dillon Show on the MLW Network. Uh, we're having a lot of fun with it, and I think the wrestling fans would enjoy the conversation. We talk about a myriad of topics. A lot of it has been things that are in my book, but now you're hearing it from me, and you're hearing hearing it in in a lot more detail. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. JJ thank Dillon you. Podcast. Check it out. Everybody. All right. And to all the fans out there, you supported me my whole career. And without you, the fans, there'd be no professional wrestling. There'd have been no Four Horsemen. There'd have been no J.J. Dillon. So thank you. Thank you. And now we're, we're going to move on to the SmackDown review. And J.J., if you hit the red button, uh, that should log you off. And thank you so much. Well, we'd love to have you on again. Okay, I don't know where the red, bu- the red button is. That the phone where? Yep. Y- yes, correct. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> and I'm about to hop on a conference call with Jeff Jarrett. Uh, we'll have highlights of that here on Wrestling this afternoon. So I'm going to have to bow off again for the SmackDown review. But next week I'm going to try to do it. If there's <laughs> no other interviews and stuff. So, uh, but you guys take it away. Cool. Thanks, Raj. Uh, so yeah, that was great, uh, Chris. So let's talk about SmackDown last night and a little bit about talking smack. So uh, open the show last night with the news that AJ Styles, the new U.S. champion, having won from Kevin Owens at a Madison Square Garden live event the previous Friday, and uh, AJ Styles came out and brought back the uh, United States Challenge. Same open challenge that John Cena, of course, so memorably did during his run. And, of course, John Cena came out to answer that challenge. Uh, had a little promo off between the two guys in the ring, setting up, uh, you know, maybe something in the future. Obviously, their mutual respect for one another. And, of course, before they could really get to a match, they were interrupted by Kevin Owens and Rusev, setting up a tag for later in the night. Uh, Chris, to start with, what do you think about this title change? And AJ is the U.S. champ now, taking the belt off Kevin. I think it was uh, done well, basically because now you have everybody buying tickets for live events because they give the sort of sort of the situation that anything can happen. Yes, I realize it was MSG. They want to give something special to that crowd, but it also gave them a chance to put this segment on the next week's SmackDown um, because they teased the absolute crap out of it with the Cena AJ match, and we were all giddy, and then Owens came out like a true heel and uh, interrupted and we got the tag match later which was which was fine but uh this was really good booking i think to get the championship back on the styles it gives another layer of of character work for owens um and it it gave us a heck of a tease for uh another potential you know five-star type match yeah it's interesting you know i had the experience of seeing that news friday i think immediately after we got it was it was almost exactly coincided with finishing watching the Kevin Owens documentary on the new Kevin Owens DVD that came out. And it's really interesting to watch that documentary, how it talks about the WWE sort of finally begrudgingly coming to believe in him and give him these opportunities. Mm -hmm. And then it was very funny to see that news immediately after like, Oh, and he just lost the title at a house show. (laughs) Well, I mean, like I said, it, it makes people potentially buy tickets to those house shows now um, because of that perception. Um, and again, it's MSG. It's the most storied arena in the country or one of them. And yeah. it, it has a huge wrestling history. So I think, did they also maybe make a knee jerk reaction to, to some of the stuff going on as far as maybe with Omega and all that fun stuff mm. with the U S title? I mean, do, do you see any coinciding with some of the booking at other promotions or whether it be even the all-star game for major league baseball last night? They booked, uh, you know, Styles and Cena in the first few minutes to get you hooked. 
Yeah. No, I think they, they uh, somebody internally maybe said, you know what, we got to push AJ. We got to do something to, to stoke this. Let's front and center AJ and Cena as the, the baby face faces of right. SmackDown yeah. because Randy Orton's not bringing in the viewers. Uh, we've got, you know, the heel champs in the tag division in the uh for the universe or for pardon me for the heavyweight championship and you know I don't, i'm not sure what they're doing with naomi as the women's champ i don't know what's going on with the women's division we'll talk about that in a few minutes i could see them making the decision and saying you know what let's put aj and cena as the headline of the show um and just keep people tuning in through you know till SummerSlam. right and it's yeah and it's crazy that the u.s title really is taking precedent to the uh, world heavyweight title right now um, and yeah, it, no it's almost like anyway, those feuds, it's th those feuds should almost be flipped. Maybe Orton and Mahal, it'll be more believable as Mahal is the U.S. champion. Um, and, and more believable maybe for, you know, Cena and Styles to be at the world championship level. Uh, to me, you would almost flip the belts on each feud and it would make more sense. But if it gives more credence to the U.S. title, I'm completely fine with it. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's very interesting just to see the way that it's going right now because it seems like there were no rush to get that belt off of Jinder. Same with Naomi. Like, just settle in. This is where it's going to be. And maybe the U.S. championship is going to be the one with a little hot potatoing between now and SummerSlam. Plus, I don't know if this struck you as a surprise, but the fact that, you know, during Great Balls of Fire, we got them saying, hey, Battleground's coming up two weeks from tonight. Mm -hmm. Uh Usually they try and space these out a little bit more, but I think they're trying to get that out of the way so they have a nice month-long runway in between Battleground and SummerSlam. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of crazy that you know we got these pay-per-views coming up so quick, and I think they have to do something to build more anticipation for it. So uh, sure, last night's I mean, opening, you know, was certainly that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so okay, after that we had uh, teasing Baron versus Shinsuke, and. Uh, they made Cena and Styles versus Rusev and Owens for the main event that night. But then we went to Jinder Mahal versus Ty Dillinger. Nice little showcase for Ty here. What did you think of this match? Um, I actually would have liked to have seen Ty get a lot more offense in. It was pretty much a drubbing. Um, I, I thought they would at least give <laughs> Dillinger a little bit of shine. I mean, normally the guy who loses, now that they've come to this split screen thing, right? They yeah. transition to where the loser actually gets a little bit of work in during the commercial. And they're hoping that, you know, the, the people aren't seeing it because they're looking at the commercial and whatnot. But he pretty much got his butt kicked the whole time. I mean, he literally got a half dozen punches in, maybe a half a hope spot. But uh, he didn't really hit any of his major offensive moves, which I, I was a little disappointed in. I, you know, I think it's important just give him the entrance, let the fans see him and get used to him. Um, yeah, it could have gone a little bit better, but hey, at least he's on TV. And I think that given just how on fire he was on Twitter with the Miz in the, the, mm -hmm. you know, days leading up to this, I'm glad we got to see him on TV. I'm glad they're at least thinking about him. On a oh, absolutely. Basis. He's getting these backstage segments. He's getting some ring time. Um, it's, and this was more than the, the Aiden English, not, not even placeholder, a placeholder right. would be a step up for Aiden English at this point, considering how they're booking him. Right. And, and how do you get a heel over? You put them with a popular baby face and mm -hmm. let them kick their butt. And this is exactly what that was um, because Dillinger's over, still over, hasn't been on TV in weeks besides, you know, like was a Sonic spot or something the other day, uh, a couple weeks ago. But, um, you know, Dillinger is still over. The Tin Chan is still over. And it gives Mahal a little bit more credibility uh, just to pick up a good win. Yeah. 
Um, so after that, Jinder cut the same promo he's been cutting mm-hmm. for the last two months. Just at this point, I mean, my brain goes on autopilot. I feel like we could have Jinder Mahal bingo. You know, it's like he's just going to hit the same points. Diversity, way I talk, way I look. Bingo. People in India. Sorry, but, yeah, no. exactly. It's all, you know, the same thing. And he's getting better with it. But, man, okay, now that he's kind of mastering this, let's give him something new. Let's add a new wrinkle to it, you know? Uh, and there will be next week because the Punjabi prison will be at SmackDown. Yeah, and that's, that's I feel bad for the production crew next week. That's that's pretty much where my sympathy lies at this point because if I remember correctly, that's not the easiest looking structure to either move or build or anything because it's like dual layered, right? And steel reinforced bamboo because that's the thing. Or bamboo reinforced steel, one of the two. Yeah, one <laughs> of the two. Something's reinforced. I think I think the bamboo it's on the bamboo on the outside around steel. Right. Okay. There you go. I think that's the way they do it. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like you go in the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland. Same concept, you know, like it's really steel. We put some bamboo on it. It looks nice, you know, has you nice, uh, but uh, yeah. So uh, get hyped for the Punjabi prison match. You're going to see the Punjabi prison next week on uh, SmackDown Live. Um, so after that, Xavier Woods versus Jay Uso. They're, uh, we're in this stage of the keeping the tag feud going of the, the redundant singles matches. Xavier Woods picked up a win. This do anything for you, Chris? Um, my, my favorite part of the match was little Nate taking charge and throwing everybody out. Uh, <laughs> and you know, that sort of gave them a one-on-one. It made it a little more believable. There was no chicanery. Um, and you also forget how decent or actually good that Xavier Woods is in the ring. Um, that, that elbow is pretty much a coast to coast almost that he does. Um, you know, he went three quarters away, uh, down the side of the ring, but you know, with that said, I hated that particular version of it because if you remember the Alberto Del Rio stomp finisher, um, where the guy actually has to physically hang onto the ropes and hold himself up, that's what that one was. And I'm like, Oh, come on guys, let's use a little bit more logic. Let him just do a long distance elbow from the mat. Don't, don't do the rope spot that that just put a little bit of corny corniness in there for me but uh no woods is good in the ring sometimes we forget that until we see him in one-on-one action i think they really wanted to uh you know get those clips into the rap battle last week get a little more mileage out of that and try and keep the oh, yeah. feud going for battleground I have to say this about talking smack so i have an, a new uh, addendum i know we've said talking smack is always awesome when daniel bryan's on not quite the same without him i will say having the usos on as a guest on talking smack even with shane last night Entertaining. Really entertaining. The Usos are, now that The Miz is over on Raw, by the way, The Miz on Raw Talk this week, if you have not watched that, watch The Miz on Raw Talk. Fantastic. Best thing he's done done since his Talking Smack promo last year. Um, But yeah, The Usos, actually last night's Talking Smack I thought was pretty good. I thought The Usos absolutely um, elevated that. And John Cena was fantastic, especially at the end there when he just fully... Fully got loose with it. If you want to see John Cena get a John Cena get a little loopy, uh, watch Talking Smack last night. And Sami Zayn was good. Um, we'll talk a little bit about his segment in a moment on uh, SmackDown Live. So, okay, backstage, so much. Uh, Carmella gave Shane McMahon something from her lawyer about James Ellsworth and his suspension, which Shane promptly tore up. And then for Battleground, oh my God, Chris, for the first time ever, all the SmackDown women. Five of them in an elimination match on a pay-per-view. Never heard of this. Yeah, to determine the number one contender. Dear God. 
like, never heard of this style of match before. It's uh, it's historic, as they would say. Um, okay, so is this better or worse? I, I can't well, decide I, anymore. Is it better that all the women are in the same segment, essentially, every week, every pay-per-view? Or is it better what Raw's doing and telling individual stor- stories poorly? Like, I don't well, know which right, is better. So here's the thing. If we look back at the brand split initially, SmackDown actually had two or three separate women's feuds going on at the very same time. Now, granted, that's when they had a little bit weaker male roster, too. And now, since they did the, the shakeup and whatnot, I think uh, Raw's women's roster is a little bit better. Um, so maybe there's a little less time to put two different segments on SmackDown for the women because they, they need to fit uh, Cena in now that he's back. They've got to do a world title program. They've got these new characters like the Canelli and stuff that they're trying to fit in. Uh, so there's only two hours of space to fit all that in. So it's probably easier, a little bit lazier, but easier booking-wise just to give them one segment, and then maybe they'll branch off with the whole Tamina Lana thing um, in, in the next little few weeks, maybe after SummerSlam. But here's my thing with this. They said Naomi wasn't going to... Uh, or it appears not, uh, defend her title until SummerSlam. That's yeah. about 40, 46 days away. Where, where's that 30-day 30, Where's that 30 day clause at, Glenn? It's got to be in that rule book somewhere, right? Hey, man, you don't put a bunch of LED lights on a belt just to give it away in two weeks. Because, I mean, come on, Char- Charlotte's winning that title. I mean, I think they're trying to delay the inevitable with this. And actually, I respect SmackDown Live's creative team for showing some restraint in not putting the belt on Charlotte right away. Um, mm-hmm. but I mean, come on, like Naomi is, is competent in the ring. She's charismatic as hell. Got an amazing entrance. People love having her as the champ, but her against Charlotte, unless Carmella interferes with that. And maybe that'll be what happened. happens. Maybe Carmella interferes, gets the belt at SummerSlam, and then Charlotte takes it off for the next pay-per-view. But I, I just on the sure fact they're not doing anything with Naomi as champion, aside from putting the lights on the belt, that's been the biggest piece of character yep. development with her i don't think she's long for that title um but it's not happening until SummerSlam. so uh yeah we'll see who gets number one contendership at battleground my guess uh my money's on charlotte love for it to be becky but i just uh see where this is all going um hope to be pleasantly surprised uh speaking of stuff for battleground nakamura versus baron corbin last night didn't actually happen uh nakamura attacks corbin yeah i mean this is a new wrinkle uh because it actually shows a little emotion a little aggressiveness from nakamura because he's just kind of been there and almost seemed to like enjoy his time on the main roster and now he shows like oh this means something Uh, and this guy has something maybe that i want and took away from me um in that match so the feud actually means a little something now. It gives a new little layer to the onion that is Shinsuke Nakamura. And, um, you know, you got, you got to have layers, Glenn. You got to have layers. Oh, yeah. He's a mystery wrapped in an enigma. I mean, uh, clearly. Um, I think uh, Shinsuke's great. I think that this is how they keep it going. Better this than uh, a lot of talky promos. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, uh, I think it'll be a great match. You know, uh, Shinsuke might need uh, to launch off something to do that uh, Kinshasa on Corbin, though. He's a little tall. Maybe Corbin little could just lean down, you know, and take it. Um, so Charlotte Flair and Becky Lynch versus Natalia and Tamina Snuka. Hey, if you are not excited about seeing five of these women together at Battleground, what about seeing four of them in a tag match mm-hmm. on SmackDown Live? 
they um, have to condition us slowly. Start with four, then five, and then maybe we'll get a sixth. Um, you know, random one. Who who knows? Who knows? Poor Lana. It just goes to show they don't believe. I mean, because Tamina and Lana would have made a hell of a lot of sense given how they set up the story uh, and the pairing of the two of them. But they were like, "No, look, we need to, we need we need Natalia in the ring on this one uh, with Tamina." Um, but Tamina and Natalia did get the win. I thought it was an okay match, you know. Uh, but it's just it's hard to maintain enthusiasm. Yeah, at least Lana got out there and yeah. you know, distracted the finish. Um, you know, we didn't get to really hear her catchy theme song. Uh, but other than that, um, you know, she was involved in the finish, so she's still relevant into that equation. So they didn't completely leave her out of the segment, which I thought was good. Did you see that video someone posted on Twitter? And I think it's on YouTube now of the guy that, that makes up the theme music for the Lana thing. And it's just, mm -hmm. you know, I'm dancing on a chair. I'm dancing on a chair. <laughs> He's just singing it along with it. It's very cute. I saw it on Twitter. But now I think it every time I hear Lana's theme music. Um, yeah, it's something else. Uh, best part about Lana, the entrance music and her look. And she looks like a million bucks until she starts wrestling, which is unfortunate because the women's division is surprisingly. She's competent in the ring. She's not garbage at all. She's, no, she's not garbage, she's but, competent. The, but the drop off, though. I mean, we talked about this at that, uh, you know, her first title match against Naomi. When she came in and did the attack and was holding up the belt and the belt matched her dress and she had that swagger. Like, mm -hmm. all of us believed it. Like, oh, shit, Lana could win the Lana could be the women's champion. Right. You know, she could do this. And then you saw the match. And it was like, okay, Lana's not going to be the women's champion. It's, it's like now she's being yeah. like putting under the mother's wing of Tamina and Natalia in a sense now, which is kind of neat in a way, but kind of weird too. What was I guess. Meltzer's quote? So everybody look up Meltzer's quote on uh, Tamina and Lana. I'm not going to repeat it, but oh, I boy. thought it was, it was funny. <laughs> Just that, Cause I think a lot of us inferred sort of the same thing. Uh, okay. So, I turned a corner on the Canelli, the Canelises last night. Uh, they should have done this two weeks ago. Um, we saw what happens when the power of love turns crazy uh, with Sami Zayn confronting the Canelli last night. And then Maria smashing a vase over his head. Really hope that was sugar glass. Uh, what'd you think of this? And this, did this kind of get you a little more interested in this feud? It's uh, It was very powerful win um so but you know it, it was much better than they've done like you said in the past couple of weeks um it showed a little bit of development um maria said you know she's always been a pretty decent talker yeah she proved that last night um mike canellis i can't i keep wanting to call him mike bennett it's, it's going to be a habit that i have to get rid of but his shirt rest in peace to the couch that died to to get <laughs> that but it fits the character brilliantly uh, so, you know, it, it, it was good. Uh, and it gave another, like I said, the, the layering was good tonight. Like there was better character development than it was entering action a lot of time tonight. Mm -hmm. uh, and Sami Zayn showed a little different side to him to where he, he, he was kind of that still neurotic, innocent guy. But then he would, he, you know, talking smack, he was actually quite serious. Yeah. Um, which was which was really good to see. Um, so I like the, the different sides that we're seeing of everybody. And I thought it was an improvement, uh, for the Canelli for sure. Maria plays crazy very well. And I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's good that she's in this role, but I think she, she would be a dominant force in the women's division. If she, if they put her in the women's division, Carmelo better watch out because Maria is a whole other level in this character than Carmela is. Yeah, uh, probably about the same level in the ring. Um, yeah. If not, maybe a half step below. But um, now 
Jack O'Bean in the chat um, is, is basically telling you to watch out that uh, Mike's about to Mike's about to beat uh, Sammy Glenn. So what what are your thoughts on that? Hey, for Sammy, it's not about the win; it's about getting back up from the loss. You know, that's his character. Oh, you, you, you've bought, you've bought into to the, the Kool Aid, huh? You know, you got to believe in something. Also, you know, here's the reason why that Owens documentary is great on the DVD is that the first half of it might as well be an Owens and Sami Zayn documentary. It's very, very good. And I think the first time anywhere I've seen Zayn confirming El Generico, just a little, little wrinkle, but one I appreciated because, you know, normally he keeps that up pretty well in kayfabe. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, very interesting. I think Sammy, you know, look, hey, it's something for him to do, man. You know, I think uh, they'll go back to the well with him and Owens. Who knows, man, if it's AJ versus uh, Cena going in the fall. Although I don't really think they'll do that now. I think they, they tried to put a pin in it, but I just don't see the story there, given how they're doing the mutual respect for each other. Mm -hmm. But I could definitely see them go, you know, before the end of the year, I'm sure they'll go back to KO versus Sammy for another round. Um, interesting promo with Cedric Alexander for his I Quit match with Noam Dar on 205 Live. Um, that was something. Well, well here, here's my thing with this is you, you, you have these 30 second terribly scripted promos that they are reading word for word. Uh -huh. Like, all right. So these awesome video packages that WWE does for every single feud at every single pay-per-view or even the previous week's segment, could we not just like put like a historical valued um, video package in, in place of these terrible little inset promos? Like, wouldn't that get you a little bit more hyped than a terribly scripted promo? They got to do something with it. Make it more or, or do something like um, more like talking smack where maybe it's a little more improv and they maybe have these guys go out there and do improvised promos and just show us the best bits, you mm -hmm. know, just something to make it a little more lively and energetic. Um, we went from that, man, fashion files last night. Holy crap. Uh <laughs> Just that end. Look, the segment itself was was okay, but that yeah. entrance—I mean, that the credits that they made to that to the Walker Texas Ranger thing were absolutely so fantastic. So good. Every like, time these I think guys, I'm sick of this, you know. Oh, they keep bringing us back, and, and they reel us in every single time. And this was one of the more average segments itself. Yeah. Uh, but really, the, the MVP of this segment to me was Mojo Rawley. And yeah. bless me for saying that. I've never said that my entire life uh, because he played the straight man, like the hype guy played the straight man in Brizongo's comedy and Zack Ryder being a little bit more uh, broski this week than he has been since his return. Uh, but, but kudos to uh, Mojo Raleigh for showing a few acting chops. I thought that was, thought that was solid. Yeah. Although, uh, man, do you think they even know who, who this mystery culprit is with uh, not a chance. Go. Yeah, and not I think it's going to be disappointing. It's going to end up being very disappointing uh, when we find out who the culprit is. It's just, it's probably not going to be American yep. Alpha, probably not the Ascension. Just, uh, yeah, we're in this one for the journey, not the destination, folks. Um, there you go. Let's talk about the main event. Kevin Owens and Rusev versus AJ Styles and John Cena in a tag match. The face is won. What did you think of the match itself? Match was good. I mean, with those four guys in it, it pretty much has no choice but to be at least decent. Um, you could tell that they didn't. It was almost like a house show main event. There was a lot of posing, oh, a, a lot of a lot of jaw jacking. I mean, there 
there wasn't a ton of, of action. They obviously held back. I mean, because they, they want to hold all the action for their individual feuds in a couple weeks at Battleground. So, but was it a good 15, 20 minute TV main event? Sure. Um, did it really blow me away? Not really. Uh, but, but I think it was good for what it was. And we got to see, you know, probably the four biggest stars on the program. Yeah. So uh, next week, next week's the go home show for Battleground. They got to, they got to get us invested. They got to make us believe it. Yeah, because the card that they have right now, they're taking to Philadelphia, one yeah. of the most vocal crowds in the country. And right now, I, I, I fear for that program. Um, it looks like an okay card, but when you compare it to like Great Balls of Fire, um, it's a little lackluster. So I'm, I'm almost afraid that Philly crowd is going to crap on it a little bit. So I really hope these guys over deliver um, with the matches that they're given. Yeah. Let's see what happens, man. Battleground. And uh, you know, it just occurred to me in my head for some reason, I was thinking like, oh, it's been a year since the draft. Maybe we'll get in their draft. And then I went back to look at the superstar shakeup. And I was yep. like, nope, that was the draft. Mm -hmm. There was no draft this year uh, because they moved 10 wrestlers roughly on each side between each brand. So uh, yeah, lock in folks. This is, uh, this is what, yeah. what it's looking like. There's no need for a rotating door every three to four months. I mean, if they do it once a year, fine. But even twice a year, I wouldn't do it any, do it any more than that, though. Yeah, uh, so your prediction for Monday night on Raw, since you were not with us this week, Kurt Angle's big secret. Uh, we've been joking on the podcast that Matt Morgan's been texting inappropriate things to Kurt Angle <laughs> and that Kurt's going to bring him out on Monday. But uh, who do you think it's going to be? Uh, all right, so we have Dixie Carter on WWE television, right? Um, so, and, okay, sorry, I might have broke up there a little bit. Uh, yeah. Dixie Carter on WWE television with the Kurt Angle documentary. You have Stephanie McMahon, who's been off TV for many, many months. Um, if you look at it logistically, a Kurt Angle Triple H match would make sense at SummerSlam. So Stephanie, I think, would be the easiest answer. I think maybe Dixie Carter being a wild card, but uh, unless you think uh, – were there any other maybe lost superstar theories? Uh, what did you guys come up with on Monday? No, I think uh, Dixie, Steph, Triple H, that was uh, pretty much the scope of it. Would love to be surprised on this one. Oh, absolutely. Um, I hope we, hope we get a bit of a swerve here. Yeah, uh, Hornswoggle is Vince McMahon's illegitimate son. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, guys, crazy. So, uh, right before we get off the air here, great podcast today. Again, check out J.J. Dillon's podcast. Great storyteller. Great just to listen to him talk today. Uh, we were talking about the latest with Alberto El Patron and Paige, and it looks like uh, he's been suspended by GFW. Yep, he has, um, and Jeff Jarrett is doing a media call today. Not sure if that is pertaining to that exact situation, but, man, did, what are your general thoughts on this one, Glenn? Because, you know, we don't want to get too personal with uh, relationship situations, but with alcohol and drugs, you know, being potentially involved you know, with, with the domestic abuse allegations, just it, it's a bit of a mess, but just what are your general thoughts on it? Well, look, I, I agree that we should respect wrestlers' personal lives uh, for the most part. In this case, it was a very public incident, kind of weird that a fan got involved or involved herself in this. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I was saying that when you see that headline, you think about domestic violence, normally there's an assumption you make about who's involved with it. And in this case, it's like, no, I, th I think these two are, you know, I said it before, the Whitney and Bobby of professional wrestling, they are a danger to each other and right. should be uh, separated. Uh, you know, legally, 
uh, by force if need be, whatever it takes, because I just, it sounds to me like this is one of those toxic relationships that is, you know, uh, full of passion in all of its different manifestations, you know, and uh, just crazy, man. It's absolutely crazy, but good on GFW for, uh, you know, trying to maintain a standard and uh, show some rules and boundaries for their talent. Absolutely. And I believe Raj and maybe even Joshua are going to be covering the conference call, uh, media call with Jeff Jarrett uh, that began at 1 p.m. Eastern. So I'm sure that we'll have highlights posted of that and probably check it out on our audio channel as well. As always, guys, subscribe on iTunes. Uh, leave us a, a nice rating. If you uh, have some feedback for us, leave it there as well. But uh, good stuff, Glenn. I enjoyed uh, yeah. JJ on the show. That was great. And a uh, reminder, if you're a fan and you see uh, two professional wrestlers or just even one professional wrestler having, you know, some sort of domestic or relationship dispute out in public, um, don't feel obliged to get in and mediate. That's not necessarily no. your role. No, no. You know, if, if you think someone's in trouble, call the authorities. Don't say, I need to get some audio and video of this and I'm going to go and intervene. Let the proper channels take their job. But I do appreciate that the woman that shot it uh, got a hold of Raj and was on the phone with Raj talking to him about it. You know, uh, so mm. I guess if you feel the need to involve yourself, Wrestling Inc. first, right? I mean, think of us as exactly. the place to break to exclusive. Exactly. But for the most part, mind your own business and don't ever bother wrestlers at the airport. That's like the biggest dick move uh, that you can do, <laughs> you know, especially if they're arriving from someplace. If they're departing, you know, do the head nod. The head nod or do the, you know, I'm really sorry to do this. I just want to shake your hand and then leave it at that. But don't be there like, hey, let's, you know, do some couples counseling right here. I'll mediate. Uh, so, everyone, thanks for tuning into the Wrestling Inc. podcast. You can follow Chris Knockdown Radio on Twitter. Myself, Glenn Rubenstein, Raj, Mr. Raj Geary 303, JJ Dillon, thanks for being on the show. And we'll be back here Monday night to talk about Monday Night Raw, the fallout from the Kurt Angle situation with myself, Raj Geary, and Matt Morgan. Until next time, folks, I'm Glenn Rubenstein. Take care.